and I have to go right into <laughs> the flowers, which um, shows that um, probably my sense of smell really is quite weak. Life in Sense with Joe Barrett and Odette Toilette. Oh no, we have passed by one bush that has stopped flowering, but when it's in flower, the skimia, I think it's absolutely marvellous. It's all gone. We're in the garden with developmental psychologist Uta Frith. There's very non-showy white little blossoms. Hardly, you know, you wouldn't notice them. But when you walk past, you say, what is this? This is wonderful. Uta is one of the most formidable neuroscientists of her generation, particularly known for her pioneering work in the field of autism. She has used the garden as a metaphor for the brain, full of things that have to be cultivated and constantly checked. So it's fitting that we join her here as she leads us in and out of the undergrowth in search of fragrant leaves and blooms. Really wonderful scent, quite, um, you know, it doesn't have any, any negative things with it, as some flowers do, where you say, oh, it's very nice, but, but, you know, there's also a little sort of background, which is not nice. So this is good, but I'm sorry it's all gone. But, um, let's find some others. We are then taken on a tour through the rest of her house and life, by way of some of the smells she has encountered on the way. Really the main reason I wanted you to come to this garden is to see this plant. Do you know what it is? This is, uh, you know, all these sort of tiny leaves in a rosette, green leaves, and a very tiny white flower on top. And it's like a weed. I think people might say, it is a weed. And I <laughs> treat it with great respect. And this is woodruff. It has this sort of very, not just grassy smell, but something extra nice. Mm. And you can, in Germany, where I come from, of course, people would use these, you know, bunches of this and make a kind of punch, which is called May Bowl. It's just fragrant, you know, with this woodruff. It would be wonderful if it was a really sunny day and you could sit outside under the chestnut trees, for example, flowering chestnuts would be the right time. If people wanted to make a May bowl at home, what else goes into it? Sugar. <laughs> uh, and, and, and to make it sort of, you know, okay for children or young people to drink, there'd be sort of half water, half wine. And probably if you wanted to, you could add a slice of lemon. So it's simplicity itself, and it looks beautiful because you have these things floating about, and it does taste interesting, to me at least. So I have put it everywhere, um, and here it is much more out. And I, you know, I really sort of take liberal amounts whenever I pass because it, it's just otherwise mm. too too uh, happy to grow. I would have slight suspicion that somehow this is not as fragrant woodruff as you get it in the woodlands in Germany, but I, I haven't tested that properly. So it's, it's the same plant. But you know how when you get uh, rosemary in a Mediterranean garden or country, it's so 
beautiful in smell. When you get it here, we have it here, it's the same plant, might be, you know, from the same place. It's just not quite so aromatic. No, I don't. I wish it did. That's one of the difficulties about houses. They they, they bring their own smell, and I always sort of said, no, there's something not 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 so nice about it. And I I always try and cover it up or do something. And I think what, what's, of course, a particularly nice way of making a house smell nice, in my view, is to have nice uh, beeswax polish and have lots of it on all the wood. And that smells nice, I think. That's a sort of, <laughs> you know, nice feeling about going into a house. Most of the uh, our daily lives are really, you know, smell is, is unbelievably important. Uh, we know which brain areas are, are part of the smelling brain. Quite big in a way. Also, people always point out, ah, oh, in relation to a dog's brain, it's very, very poor. But not not so poor. I'm I'm, I'm taking the you know the glass half full rather than half empty view here. It's still it's a very ancient part of our brain. It it must be important. Uta, we're in your bathroom looking at your medicine cabinet. Yes, because there are some things that I sort of carry along with me from, you know, long, long, long ago. Should we start with one of these that you might never have come across? I'm afraid I don't actually know the English name of this particular amazing ointment, but it is known as Essigsaure Tonerde, and it's... The association is that you will immediately feel a calming feeling on your skin if you have a sting or a cut or something, and smell this. What do you say? It's, oh. It is sort of acid, isn't it? Mm. But it's just so healthy smelling, I think. It's just, ah! Oh. It must do you good. So I I love this. And it's, you know, I found this by chance because I think even in Germany it would be very difficult to find. It's sort of very basic kind of medication. And maybe another thing which, which really has to do with um, baby cream. This whole <laughs> uh, box, this round box, was this absolutely sort of Art Nouveau picture. It has been like that for a very, very long time. They they reissued this for a jubilee. So they really, it's it's an absolute replica. And I think this is already about 25 years old when I bought it as a replica. But, you know, it lasts forever. And it's the sort of cream that you need for babies and it smells of babies. It's based on, on zinc there are many versions of it, but it's it's an it's to me it evokes nice babies and lovely feelings. But it's that sort of simple and evocative baby smell which I really like. I also have to admit I like this iodine smell because again it's it's associated with oh, a, a kind of um, you know when when you have a cut 
and you know it will burn <laughs> when you put it on, but it would be so good, and you know you've done something to make to start the healing. So iodine is something that I think you can smell on on top of other smells, sometimes in wine, sometimes in food. Um, it's an interesting, strange sort of smell. I sort of I really like it in treasure. It. So when I first came to, to England, I, I learned all about TCP. I had not had any uh, knowledge of this smell. And now everything, <laughs> I you know, I often say, oh, yeah, that's like TCP. Oh, that reminds me. And this is a, oh, it's such a strong creosote smell. Again, I like it because it, it has such a, a clean, positive yet a stringent property to it. So not at all cloying sweet, it's exactly the opposite. And I think also, you know, to some extent, it's it's abrasive, isn't it? It's It doesn't want to be liked. It's TCP. <laughs> There's this idea that something smells like it will do good. So do yeah. you believe that the, you know, the fat TCPs are a great yeah. thing to use or this gel, it, it sorts you out? Do you think that that's the smell of it for you there is there is that i think there is definitely you know we we have a, a mechanism in our brain that that allows us to learn by association very quickly so if you have a very good experience for example a, a pain lessens immediately and the thing that happened just before that lessening of the pain that is so rewarding that will be remembered that this will be encoded and this is this is one of the reasons why we like these things but i don't think that we would naturally want to 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 go for these abrasive and strange smells i think they have to have some kind of learning experience significance about them One particular thing that I very much remember when I first came, you know, to live in London was the spill of coal fires when you walk through the streets. And, of course, uh, they banned uh, coal fires, open fire. I mean, they, they, you could only have smokeless fuel and that, that changed everything. But to me, the smell is still quite present and I loved it I just thought it was so good it was so interesting but I do love wood fire smell as well but this coal smell was sort of very urban and that that was what sort of amazed me it sort of attracted me it was a different kind of coal than you would have had in Germany I think it really did smell differently and of course I was not used to open fires that was one of the sort of magical things to experience coming to from the continent to to England to have open fires oh brilliant and have wood there and have coal there and and just sit in front of it and you know you could really um, imagine yourself in, in a different century at a different time I'm very, very upset easily by burning toast smell. I don't like it. And I think this is something to do with a, a very practical fear of, of burning or fire. You shouldn't be, uh, you know, there. If, if it burns like burnt toast, you should run away. So this, this reflex is still working in me, for example. Do you think that 
we can overcome or write over a learned association with a smell that that gives us a particular response? Yes, I think it's a very interesting question. There are certain uh, associations that are very difficult to override. On the other hand, one shouldn't uh, underestimate the sort of plasticity of the brain that learns new things. And it is possible to unlearn some, but it's very, very difficult. And most of the time, what we do is we just sort of bury them underneath and we don't, you know, we don't have the right... Um, uh, cues for them to be evoked we avoid those things and then that's fine it's just buried and it's just there one thing I really miss here is not being able to go for woodland walks or forest walks I did grow up in a place which is sort of in the middle of woods and, and woodland is very meaningful to me and I, I had lots of scents from there, for example mushrooms that are very meaningful to me and very interesting and I, I, I have some wow. dried mushrooms here, morels, but you know the old mushrooms have very much a taste, but a flavour that is sort of distinctive and interesting, to me always interesting. I certainly love mushrooms. It was, you know, you had your little basket and you were told exactly how to, you know, to cut them and um, they were absolutely marvellous, so chanterelles or sep or that kind of thing. So, yes. Um, because I suppose over here the equivalent is fruit picking, which is quite big and people go in the summer and do yeah. that. But yeah. mushrooms, obviously, you... You have to learn what to yes. take and what not yes, to take. Yes, that's true. And they do happen sort of like in at particular times and you have to go then or not at all. But it's so wonderful to find them. So I, I, I associate a lot of pleasure with that. But there are also uh, berries to pick. There were lots of um, blueberries. Now you might have thought there should have been really fabulous wild strawberries, but not really. <laughs> Sadly, I don't know where they grow. <laughs> I also love cloves. And they, they are interesting, slightly medicinal thing. I think they were used originally as a kind of... An, uh, disinfectant, I think you yeah, could. Eugenol in the in dentistry. That's right. And I sometimes sort of just chew on them a little bit, which is not which one shouldn't really do. I even have a little bit of clove oil, which can be put onto if you have some kind of mouth uh, ulcer or something. It's it's okay, and it's very very nice. I think it's one of our, you know, most interesting, important spices. I mean, there are so many, you know, we have lovely nutmeg and, 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 and indeed saffron and wonderful things, but these cloves are something I could not possibly do without, I think. You know, my, my life is sort of divided into before and <laughs> a, a time when, when baking was an absolutely weekly occurrence, at least. My mother used to always, every weekend, bake the most wonderful sort of yeast-based cakes. And 
they were basically flat um, a base and you would have fruit on top and you would have the most marvellous plum cakes or you would have apples on top if, if there weren't any any other fruit around or you would have rhubarb and um, it would be rhubarb cheesecake for example absolutely marvellous or sometimes if you really didn't have any fruit you could just put sugar and cinnamon on top which would be sort of like a, a equivalent to a Danish pastry so this is what what I loved and, and did and now because it is so important not to eat too much for me and I'm getting heavier and heavier I had to completely stop making cakes I said right there's one thing I can do no biscuits no cakes that hasn't actually helped me a lot but I think it would be even worse if I did do all these things so I do this about once a year and it has to be sort of New Year's Day when I do a lot of baking and then we have a New Year's Day party I really really enjoy doing that and I also feel a sort of real connection with my mother there and also interestingly my not grandfather, great-grandfather, I think. Her grandfather, one of her two grandfathers, was a baker. And she always thought, you know, we have to learn this properly. And, and when I was sort of, I don't know, 15, 16, she said I should go. And she, she organised this, that I would go into a bakery for a day and really watch and see what's going on, how people make bread and how they make rolls and what happens. And sort of still with me. And I think it is a good thing to do this properly and so on. Well, the big, big thing, of course, in, in terms of spices and so on, is Christmas bakery, all these little biscuits. And that was a, a, an, an annual event. And I, I, again, I don't do this now because it would just be, uh, you know, inviting a disaster on the scales. But I think I will do it with my grandchildren. I started a little bit uh, last Christmas. They are three and a half now. And they're just, you know, I think when, when it's Christmas this year, They'll be just the right age and they'll get their aprons like I used to get aprons. My sister got an apron and we, we go and do all these, you know, amazing little shapes that you can, you can get. One of my earliest memories, I think, is uh, that I broke a perfume bottle of my mother's. I, mean, I, I was playing on her dressing table and obviously was supposed to do that and she wasn't there. And I still remember this crystal ball. It was an absolutely round thing with a rough surface which had this golden liquid inside. And I believe even now that it was in a black box. I have no idea what perfume it was, but I, I think it must have been a French perfume. It was special. It was a treasure. And, of course, I, I, I broke the bottle. The whole perfume uh, went out and it was a disaster. And I cried and my mother was very, very cross. I'm certainly interested in, you know, how the brain perceives the world... 
I, I believe that we know least of all about the sense of smell, and yet it's incredibly important because that's how we select people we like and how we reject people we don't like. It's all done on the basis of, of pheromones or, or smells, in other words. But it's very unconscious. We don't know quite how it happens. And there is something very strange about perfumes going well with some people and not with others, with yourself. You know, you notice this. So there must be um, a basic, I suppose, body perfume that you have, which you enhance or complement by buying these things and you can sort of play around. And I think that they are extremely important in, well, in studying how we interact with other people. I think how we are attracted or not or not attracted. And, you know, it, 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 is, a, it is something that we need to, to learn more about, I think. But I think that I really got interested in perfumes when I went first on a school trip, no less, to Paris. So this was the first experience I said I was in a really, you know, big city. And not just a big city, but Paris. And it was just wonderful for all sorts of reasons, like, you know, the, the market stalls there, the, you know, the gouloirs and all that. Although I have to say my father was a, a, a 40 gouloirs a day smoker, so I was very well used to that. But in Paris, I learned that you could go to department stores and you could try perfumes. That was a revelation to me. Now, from that day on, I think I have always... When I'm in a department store, trying at least one perfume, and it's sort of like a an education. So you can say, "Ah, oh, right, that's how you do it. Let's try, let's do it." And I, I found it absolutely amazingly wonderful. It's really, the, you know, I remember more than going to the wonderful museums and the churches. Also, I, I remember that as well. In in Paris, we, you know, it had a very cultural program. But going to these department stores like Samaritaine or Printemps and have a little taste of some amazing perfume that was just incredible I did buy one for a huge amount of money to me I mean because I didn't spend it on anything else that's how how I could do this and this was called Fat de Fat and Fat F-A-T-H was a a big designer name like Dior really very very big but he has completely faded out of consciousness so has the perfume it was you know the the height of elegance and and I was probably 17 18 at the time and so this was way beyond my age I was interested also in what other young women would be wearing what kind of perfumes when I then got back and one girl I particularly admired because she was very forward very sophisticated wore this amazing perfume called Je Reviens from Worth which was so distinctive and unusual and I thought oh this was absolutely brilliant and she certainly um, 
you know, behaved in a very, let's say, unconventional fashion. So it's all belonged together. But when I tried the perfume on me, it was just wrong. And that was very sad. And I said, hmm, you really um, have to be uh, a particular person, maybe, to, to be like that. And, and in a way, that's also quite comforting because you could say I could find something that really would be just right for me it wouldn't necessarily change me but I could have different perfumes so I I loved I think to discover the ship perfumes which I've you know loved ever since and I, I think they were very special I've just remembered that one thing that I haven't shown you but I have of course I always have a bottle of Eau de Cologne from Cologne 4711 it's a sort of like a, a trademark and I've been to Cologne uh, only last year and went to this shop which is a particular address and it's really very very nice and they only sell their own they only sell their Cologne it's sort of like what I really like you know they're proud and they say this recipe is unchanged for 300 years I don't know whether I can believe them orange blossom neroli uh, captured in this essence of just delightful refreshing nothing else real true eau de cologne which was imitated everywhere and and i think people couldn't be without it i mean i i certainly you know have seen this bottle everywhere it, it was deeply unfashionable when i grew up and of course I didn't want to have anything to do with it it was only French perfumes had any interest or you know maybe uh, I don't know any any foreign perfume was okay but you know it's sort of not like a, a perfume it's it's really um, you know for a hot summer's day I think when you just spray lots in your hands and you just smell it and and I think it's that you know I suppose addictive refreshing reviving character. I think it's a little bit like people used to have the smelling salts and it could be that kind of uh, in that tradition. So I do still have that. I will not be without it, I think. Even so, you know, uh, there was a time in my life when I, when I completely reacted against it and thought that's only for my, you know, ancient uh, uh, aunties. <laughs> I think we all learn new things all the time. There's no doubt about it. We, we uh, I mean, I have learned things from going to new countries and adopting new smells. It doesn't mean that I lost the associations of the previous ones, even though I, you know, haven't, haven't come in, in touch with them for a long time. So, one of the sad things uh, is, of course, that with age, um, you lose. Your smell sensitivity, just like you, you lose hearing, you lose sight acuity. Um, that that is that is a pity, but you know it's even more important, therefore, to enjoy it while you still can. You've been listening to Uta Frith's Life in Sense. She's an active Twitter user where you can find out about what she's been up to, including Shopping in Science, a support network for women in science where she encourages members to share ideas and information that are inspiring and fun. 
we'relifeincense.com where you can download all of our previous interviews. See you next time. Life in Sense with Joe Barrett and Odette Toilette.